Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. This is something that has to be on our to-do list if we want to get through life successfully. And it's all about giving each other the benefit of the doubt. It sounds like maybe a simple proposition, but it's actually an exceedingly challenging one. Now, if you were to ask most people, how does the story of Joseph and his brothers end? I think most people would say Joseph finally reveals himself, and then all the brothers are amazed, and then they all come together, and then suddenly everything that was so painful and unclear and traumatic makes sense. And the Chofetz Chaim says that at the end of our lives, God is going to say, Ani Hashem, and all of Jewish history, all of the events of our life are instantly going to make sense. Just like when Joseph said, I am Joseph. Okay, that's just a quick overview. And I think most people feel as though that is the end of the story. And yet... There's another chapter to this story, which is the true end to this story, is kind of buried because you have an entire Parsha, and then at the very end of the next Parsha, that's where you have this little P.S. on the story. It's a very heartbreaking P.S. in terms of the relationship between Yosef and his brothers, But it's also very instructive and revelatory to us moving forward in our own individual lives. The classic romantic comedy structure for a movie. (laughs) Sounds like we just changed topics, right? But, But we didn't change topics. Is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. That's your classic three act structure. And many of these romantic movies end with the wedding scene. And then that's the end of the movie. And I heard Rabbi Green say one time that that's when he's most interested. Now that they have each other, how do they live with each other? In other words, now that I'm in this relationship, I have God and God has me. How do I maintain that relationship? And this is really the heart of the human condition. So this is what the last chapter of the story of Yosef and his brothers is really teaching us about. Again, it seems like everything has been resolved and all is well and good. And then you have these lines. Okay, I'm going to read to you from the Torah right now. If you want to look it up, it's Sefer Breshis, the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 15. Joseph's brothers perceived that their father was dead, and they said, perhaps Joseph will nurse hatred against us, and then he will surely repay us all the evil that we did to him. So they instructed that Joseph be told. Now listen to that phraseology, because it's very clear, the rabbis learned from here, that the message that they're going to send Joseph in the name of their father, before he died, was a total fabrication. That it was completely made up by them in order to maintain peace. And by the way, the major says, look how beloved peace is by God that they quote this lie. (laughs) In other words, this should have been left out entirely, right? We say, Torah emet, the Torah is a Torah of truth. So why is the Torah including this thing that the brothers fabricated? Because the brothers wanted to make peace. They were trying to make peace. And so because of that, this is included in the Torah. Because any attempt at peace is considered very, very precious. So anyway, listen to the phraseology. So they instructed that Joseph be told... Your father gave orders before his death, saying, Thus shall you say to Joseph, 
Oh, please kindly forgive the spiteful deed of your brothers and their sin, for they have done you evil. So now please forgive the spiteful deed of the servants of your father's God. And what was Joseph's reaction to what the brothers said? It's this next line. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why did he weep? Because he couldn't believe that they were suspecting him of still hating them. Remember, this is 17 years later after they theoretically made peace with each other. And now they're thinking, like it says about Esav and Yaakov, after Yaakov gets the bracha, Esav says, I'm going to wait till my father dies and then I'm going to kill him. And so the brothers are thinking, now that Yaakov is dead, now he's going to get his revenge. So how heartbreaking is this, that Yosef has forgiven his brothers, and the brothers don't realize it. And now we have to dig deeper, because what went wrong? What went wrong? And this is why I want to spend time on this, because I really feel like there's a model for us in terms of how we conduct our own lives, in terms of maintaining peace with each other, and then also avoiding these problems to begin with, of misinterpretation. Because again, if it's all about Shekhinah maintenance, if it's all about, okay, now that we have each other, how do we live with each other? These are the tools that we most need to be able to master. So what went wrong? So I'm going to give you a couple of different explanations. And then, God willing, I'm going to tell you what the Mea Shaloch says, the Ishbitzer Rebbe says, in terms of what his approach is. And all very practical ideas. Let's begin with what went wrong. Now, there are two classic explanations from the Medrash. So let's begin with the first one. Over the course of Yaakov's lifetime, he brought different sons close. But at the end of Yaakov's life, when he gave out the blessings, he made sort of like their position in the family official. And Yehuda was officially made the king of Israel. That tribe became Malchus. David Melech, King David, is from that tribe. Not only that, but Melech HaMashiach, that becomes the Messianic line. And it all comes through Yehuda. In fact, the Megali Muko says something very interesting. If you look at the spelling of the word Yehuda, it's actually the name of God. It's yud Vavke plus one letter, Dalad. And the Magalia Mukos, one of our greatest Kabbalists, says that Dalit stands for David Amelech. Isn't that interesting? So Yehuda is actually the name of God plus a Dalit for David Amelech. So you've got the Messianic line in there. Very, very amazing. You see again how Hebrew is Lashon HaKodesh, that within each word is the DNA for like worlds and worlds and worlds and worlds. So once Yehuda becomes the king, Yosef stopped inviting them to his house. And they didn't know why Yosef is not inviting us to his house anymore. And now we get to the problem. Yosef didn't know who should sit at the head of the table. This might not sound like a big problem to you. But for one of the greatest people who ever lived, Yosef HaTzadik, it was a tremendous problem. Because let's just consider the politics of this, the real politic, what it means to be in Egypt and to run in the land. If he were to put his brother at the head of the table, what message does that send to the Egyptian empire? It sends the message that he's not a loyal citizen and that he's not a true ruler and that he's abdicating 
the true power to his family members. That's called being a traitor. And do you know how nations treat traitors? Well, they sentence them to death and they kill them. And then if it's a place like ancient Egypt, they'll go, you know something? Just for good measure, we're going to kill your family as well. So the stakes were actually quite high. It wasn't just sort of like, who do I invite to my dinner party? The stakes were quite high. But a message was being sent to the brothers. And this message was, we used to be close and we're no longer close. And now, where there's an opening for confusion, people being people, worst case scenarios begin to set in. But Yosef has another identity, which is that he's Jewish as well. And he accepts from his father, remember it says, on the Kisei HaKovid, on the throne of glory in Shemayim in heaven, there's a carving of the face of Yaakov. Yaakov is making Yehuda king, and I'm going to sit at the table when my father made my brother king? So, there's a phrase that I heard one time that I really like, which is paralysis by analysis. Right? Sometimes you can think yourself into total inaction and shut yourself down through overanalyzing things instead of just taking action and moving forward. Sometimes you have to just move forward and you'll figure it out along the way. You do your due diligence and then you begin. It's how you do it. Otherwise, you stay stuck. So Yosef can't figure out the solution to this problem. Who is going to sit at the head of the table? And so his solution is not to have the brothers over at all, rather than to make a mistake. We discussed it a little bit over Shabbos. One person had a very creative solution. Why not have a round table? Very interesting. Another person had another solution. Well, at a normal rectangular table, there are two heads. Why not see Yehuda at the other end? Right? So these were all creative solutions. But trust me, do you think that Yosef didn't think of those two things? <laughs> now I'm going to give you another explanation. And this one is actually, I think, even deeper. You ready for this? The question is, why did the brothers suspect Yosef? So when they went to bury Yaakov, remember, they're burying Yaakov in Moras Hamach Pelah, the cave of the patriarchs. They're going back into Israel, back where they all used to live as a family. Well, guess what? They pass by the pit that the brothers threw Yosef into. And guess what? Yosef dismounts and he walks over to the pit and the brothers are looking at Yosef, looking at the pit that they threw him into. And they've just buried their father. Now listen to this. What was Yosef doing? So the Medrash says that Yosef was saying the blessing over having his life saved. That it had nothing to do with the idea of reliving the trauma and getting this revenge scenario in his mind against the brother. He had no dark thoughts whatsoever, and the Medrash says that he was completely l'shem shemayim. By the way, I want to read you the blessing which we have. This is something that everyone should know. I'll, I'll read you the little description here. It says, Upon seeing a place where one had earlier experienced a miracle that saved them from imminent danger. Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who performed a miracle for me at this place. So if you ever had your life saved in a particular place, you can recite this blessing. 
And now the blessing that I was about to tell you a moment ago is, is really intense, and, and I'll tell you why in a moment. This is upon seeing a place where one's parents or forebearers, Torah teacher or the nation as a whole was miraculously saved from imminent danger. And this one is, Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, who performed, and then fill in the blank, for my father, for my mother, for my forebears, for my teacher, for our ancestors, a miracle at this place. Now, why am I telling you the second one? Because I've been to Auschwitz two times. And the custom among people now is if you had your parents or grandparents or whatever it is saved, that at the spot where Mengele Yamach Shemo, his name should be eradicated, where he would make the selection who would live and who would die, people stand at that place and they make this blessing. And I said, Amen, to brochas being said, this brocha being said at that spot. So let me ask you this. If you're one of the brothers and you see Yosef looking into the pit that you threw him into, what are you thinking he's doing? I think that there's an excellent, excellent, excellent chance that you're thinking he's plotting revenge. And do you know why you're probably thinking that? if you want to be really honest with yourself? And the answer is, is because you probably haven't forgiven yourself. If you had completely forgiven yourself, you would not be projecting those dark thoughts on the other person. And that's one of the hardest things in the world to do, right? Some people are great at forgiving each other and forgiving God, as crazy as that sounds, but, you know, we have to forgive God too. But forgiving ourselves, most people, most people aren't able to do that. And it's tragic, actually. It, it's tragic. And I, I'll give you just one kind of tool to help in that process. And it, it's going to sound a little bit strange what I'm about to say because you probably didn't suspect yourself of thinking this to begin with. <laughs> but allow yourself to accept that you're not perfect. Let's just think it through for a moment. What is the inner logic of not being able to forgive yourself? There must be some presumption of perfection. <laughs> now, that's a little bit crazy, right? Because intellectually... If we think about it for a moment, we know we're not perfect. And I would suggest that this presumption of perfection which stops us from forgiving ourselves actually doesn't come so much from arrogance, can come from arrogance, by the way, but that more often from that, it comes from the innocence and the purity of the soul, which longs for perfection and understands that it contains within itself an aspect of Hashem who is perfect. And so there's that struggle because we understand that there is an aspect of perfection that exists within ourselves. And yet there has to be the acceptance that we're not perfect. And now I want to go deeper. Now I want to tell you what the Mea Shaloth, the Yishbitzer Rebbe says. Because now we're going to get into this kind of division within ourself, okay? So listen to this. I'm reading to you. And because his brothers assumed Yosef was acting out of hatred and resentment, they were punished with exile. You ready for this? Because they should have given him the benefit of the doubt. Isn't that interesting that it all boils down to giving other people the benefit of the doubt? Yosef's behavior, and he's addressing specifically the medrash about who sits at the head of the table. Yosef's behavior in creating the gap for misunderstanding and misinterpretation to enter 
is also considered a sin. So this is very interesting and I think very just that both sides are now being held accountable. That you've got Yosef's brothers who should have given him the benefit of the doubt and Yosef not fully communicating what was going on in his life. And so he is held accountable too by the Ishbitzer. So, you know, we always want everything to be, it's either your fault or it's my fault. I don't know, but I suspect 99% of the time it's both of our faults. And if we can begin from that place, I think that peace is actually much more attainable than it is otherwise. Because otherwise we're just looking to you to apologize and to explain yourself, and you're looking to me, and I'm becoming defensive, and then you're becoming defensive, and nothing is happening. In fact, it can get worse. Because I tried, I tried to communicate to you, but you, 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 you can't hear it. You're so wrapped up in your own thing, you can't even hear what I'm saying. Oh really, because I was about to say the exact same thing to you. You're saying that to me? How dare you when X and Y and Y and Z and... On the one hand, it's very important that we go into any conversation addressing some hurt that another person did to us with the idea that I probably played some sort of role in it as well. And if I had that awareness, probably the discussion is going to go much, much better. But I also want to give the other side of that for a moment. And my father, who was a practicing psychologist for 50 years, he told me every, in every family where there's divorce, the children blame themselves. And it's a very interesting thing, even if the children had nothing to do with it. A lot of times in cases of abuse and things like that, the victim will blame themselves. And where, where does that come from? Where does that instinct come from? And I heard this, you know, in, from a psychological source. I, I don't have a Torah source for this, but it, it made sense to me psychologically that people, they, they can't accept that they live in a chaotic world. And in fact, the world is not chaotic even though it can seem radically chaotic at times. And so as a defense against living in a chaotic world where someone did something horrible to me, if I say that I'm to blame, then while that doesn't feel great because now I'm to blame, nonetheless, I have asserted a narrative over the chaos and now the world is much more understandable. It's my fault. Don't fall into that trap. Because now you are going to the opposite extreme where you're not just saying I played a role in, in it as well, but where you're now saying it's my fault entirely. And you're getting a benefit from that, by the way. People, again, this is from my father, People stay in relationships because they benefit from the relationship. That's why people maintain relationships, okay? So, and this is coming from my father, Allah Shalom. Why would someone then stay in, a, in an abusive relationship? So, it's very, very complicated, and I, I don't want to make a huge, very troubling subject sound too simple. But I'll give you one thought on it. And this is, again, from my father. He said, a lot of times people have terrible self-esteem. And they stay in an abusive relationship because that other person reinforces their own negative self-image. Now, this is really the definition of dysfunction. This is dysfunction itself, where I am benefiting from your making me feel terrible because I feel terrible about myself. 
and you are validating the fact that I am, in fact, a bad person. This is dysfunction. So, so all of life is really like you have to know how to balance two sides. You can't just hear one idea. Like, I call it doing a 360 around an idea. When you learn a new idea, you have to know how does this idea apply in every single type of situation. And I'll give you an example. Because sometimes, this is why you have to really learn with people who know something and who have experience in life. Experience is very, very important. Okay? I'm going to give you an example. Because sometimes the way to fulfill a teaching is by doing the opposite of the teaching. And now you're not going against the teaching. You're just doing how to apply that teaching in an extreme circumstance. I know that didn't make any sense, but let me give you an example. One of my favorite examples. It's very important to tell the truth. When you don't tell the truth, it damages your soul. If your grandmother makes you chicken soup and you don't like the way it tastes and she asks you, how is the soup? The answer is, you know, grandma, I'm a person of truth. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I've gotten a little religious over the years and just want you to know that (laughs) there's only one answer when your grandmother asks you how the soup is, and that's, it's delicious. There's only one answer to that question, no matter how the soup tastes. Because the question that she's asking you isn't, how is the soup? It's, do you know that I love you? That's the question that's being asked. So, How are you a person of truth at that moment? At that moment, it's by not telling the truth. (laughs) Because there's a deeper truth that's being discussed at that moment. And you have to have the ears to hear inside the words what the real conversation that's taking place is. I had a moment like this just to share something personal with you that really was... It was hard for me. It was, I, I didn't feel good about it, but, but I'll just tell you what happened. There's a person who collects money once a week outside of the shul that I go to in the mornings. And I always try to make sure to, you know, not leave the house because I don't always have cash on me. I always make sure, you know, this is the day where they're going to be there. I have to make sure to have, you know, the money that I normally give them. Okay. So this person is very special. And, you know, no one likes just to collect money. No one feels good about that. So this person makes these cards, these like greeting cards. They're like, you know, professional greeting cards, but takes the time with almost like beautiful handwriting and almost like on a, almost like on a calligraphy level, not quite, but beautiful handwriting to write blessings about the month and blessings for the person and so when it's, the, when it's Rosh Chodesh, they give them out to the person who gives them money. And this person feels good that I'm, you know, I'm not just collecting, I'm also giving. So my son and I were davening together and, and now he's moved to a different place so we don't go together. So, so, so I gave her some money the other day and she gives me two cards. And I said, oh, no, no, just give me one because, you know, my, my, my son is in New York. And she says, no, 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 take it and mail it to him. So it's not a very big request, right? So I said, okay, okay. She sees me the next time. And she says, did you mail it to him? And I had And I felt so bad that I hadn't. Because there's something called covet habrios, which means honoring God's creations. And by my telling her that I didn't mail it, it was sending her a message, I felt, that you know this thing that you put an incredible amount of effort into, this thing that really 
preserves your human dignity and is a beautiful thing too, by the way. In and of itself, it's a beautiful thing that she's doing. It means very little to me. I didn't even bother to mail the letter. To take away someone's humanity? So, did I mail the letter and I paused because I didn't want to say a lie. But I saw her dignity in front of me and I said, I did. And I felt terrible because it was an outright untruth. But at the same time, I felt like that was the proper thing to do in the moment. And then I did, after the fact, mail the letter. But you have to do a 360 around a teaching. You have to know when does the teaching apply and when do you do the teaching in maybe a variant way, but it's still in the spirit of doing the teaching itself. Right? I don't remember the names, but these are two of the biggest names in terms of deciding halacha in the later part of the 20th century. And one of them was famously very strict about the laws of Shabbos, and one of them was very strict about the laws of what we call pakuach nefesh, which means saving a life. And there's a particular moment where the one who's very strict about saving a life gives an answer about a particular law about Shabbos and gives a very lenient answer. And if you don't know the works of these rabbis and their whole kind of like collective wisdom, you would just look at that isolated case and you would reach the decision that that rabbi is very makel, is very lenient about the laws of Shabbos. But in fact, he was being lenient on that law because he's so strict about saving a life. <laughs> and so if you really want to understand the workings and the minds of the great halachic authorities, you have to understand when two issues are colliding and which issue they are prioritizing over another issue. It's not that all of a sudden they are makel and they don't care and they're lenient and, and they're not taking things seriously anymore. It's that there's another issue that's operative, that's overriding that particular issue in their mind. And the people who really understand Torah have these broader canvases and they understand all the cogs that are in place and everything that's working. You know, I've mentioned it to you before. I don't know how or when I started doing this, but it feels so blessed that this just happens in, inside my brain, okay? which is whenever I see someone doing something that like I wince at, like I'm like, what is that? Like, why are they doing that? Like, that's, uh. I hear a voice in my head right away, you do the same thing. And oftentimes I say to myself, I, I react almost angrily to that voice, like, no, I don't. And if I think about it long enough, 100% of the time, I can find a time when I did the same thing or something almost identically the same. You don't see fault in someone else unless you have that fault inside yourself. The Baal Shem Tov brings that. Not only that, but I'll tell you something almost scary, which is God creates situations where we judge ourselves. He creates a situation around us which is going to be a little bit different from something that we've done, but the DNA is going to be the same. And then he looks to us, how are we judging this situation? And we are judging ourselves. Wouldn't you love a situation where you got to choose whether you're guilty or innocent? <laughs> I mean, who is going to give you more of the benefit of the doubt than you yourself? And so God has found a way to do that. 
where the thing that we would want the most, the ability to judge ourselves and be the final authority, God creates situations in our life that are similar to things that we've done and then looks to our reaction. It's a little bit frightening. And what's the point? What's the point? It gets back to what we said earlier. You must judge other people favorably. Not only because it creates peace, not only because it gets us out of exile, because you are actually saving your own life. You want more motivation than saving your own life? You're not going to get more motivation than that, to give other people the benefit of the doubt. So now, let's go further into what the Mea Shalalik says. Because now he's going to offer a solution. Remember, I told you that when I first presented this, it's probably not going to sound like much of a problem. Who's going to sit at the head of the table? Is this really like so perplexing, right? But it was. Like if we put ourselves in the mindset of an ancient king with the honor of the entire nation at stake in terms of our choice, who sits at the head of the table is a big issue. So amazingly, the Ishbitzer Rebbe is going to give us his answer of what Yosef should have done. Yosef couldn't figure it out. Can you imagine? Yosef Atzadik is now coming to the Ishbitzer Rebbe asking, Rebbe, what should I do? And he's going to tell him what to do. So here are the words. Yosef's behavior in creating the gap for misunderstanding and misinterpretation to enter is also considered a sin. Amos, in truth, he ought to have behaved differently. You ready? Here's the solution. He should have sat at the head as he was still the king. And now, here's the PS that we're going to delve into because it's fascinating. He should have sat at the head of the table because he was the king while holding in his heart the awareness that Yehuda was greater than him. Now that's really, really, really interesting. Because, you see, one of the keys to understanding life is to understand that everything has an outside and everything has an inside. Mitzvahs have outsides and then mitzvahs have the soul of the mitzvah. You have the action itself and then how it fixes the universe, how it fixes your own soul. And we have two aspects to ourselves. We have our outside and then we have our inside. And what's so interesting to me about this is that normally speaking, you want your outside and your inside to be in perfect harmony with each other. And now listen to this. Yosef is to sit at the head of the table because those are the laws of the land and the Torah says you have to respect the laws of the land. But the inside, which is his essence and which Hashem knows, his inside, which is his true self, is holding the fact that Yehuda is king and that Yehuda is greater than I am. The Baal Shem Tov says famously, and all the Rebbes quote this, this is one of the absolute foundational thoughts of the Baal Shem Tov. You are where your thoughts are. You are where your thoughts are. And we see a perfect example of it here. And so, so I want to make it more personal right now. How are we going to get through life? How are we going to get through this exile? So we're given two major tools here from this lesson. One is we must communicate our actions to other people, what we have in mind. We can't allow ourselves to be mysterious. Because when we allow ourselves to be mysterious, miscommunication sets in, and then the worst case scenario sets in, and then exile is decreed. 
because it creates so much separation between us. It says in Pirkei Avos, don't do something with the thought that eventually people will understand what I meant by that. That's number one. Number two, we have to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Now, with that in mind, I want to go deeper. Because giving each other the benefit of the doubt begins really with giving God the benefit of the doubt, giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt, and giving life and this world the benefit of the doubt. Now, I had the opportunity to hear this from God, and it really resonated with me. Listen to the following. According to the Zohar, we know Yaakov had two wives, Leah and Rachel. Leah represents the hidden realms. In fact, the word Leah, if you rearrange the letters, spells Ohel, which is a tent, and a tent hides what's inside the tent. So you kind of see it in her name as well. So Leah is the hidden realms. Rachel stands for the revealed realms. And just like Yaakov is married to both, Yaakov, who's called Israel, all of us, men and women alike, are also married, so to speak, to Rachel and Leah, meaning to say that every single person in their life is tied to the hidden realms and to the revealed realms. Okay, so that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. But we haven't gotten to the point yet. The revealed realms represent those things that you want. And the Torah describes Rachel as she was beautiful to the eyes. Meaning, what my eyes see are those aspects of reality that I can comprehend and those things that make sense to me. That's what my eye sees, and that's why it's beautiful, because it's comprehensible to me. Whereas the hidden realms are very, very mysterious. What about all the aspects of my life that are happening that I don't understand and I can't make sense of? That's what it means, so to speak, to be married to Leah. Where those things that I can't fully grasp or understand because their reasons are hidden are operative in my life. Now it gets more intense. Because Leah has six children of the 12 tribes. And Rachel, the revealed realms, only has two. Now I'm just adding this, because I, you know, if you want to just kind of take this teaching one step further for a moment. That means, if you want to get mathematical about it for a moment, that two-thirds of my life are Leah, hidden and not comprehensible, and only one-third is understandable or intelligible, if you want to extend the teaching. But now here's the part that really got me, that really resonated with me. He pointed out the following. Among Leah's children, are Levi, the tribe of Levi, because each of the children become tribes. Who comes from the tribe of Levi? Moshe Rabbeinu, the Torah itself. And Yehuda, what comes from Yehuda? Mashiach. That means from these hidden aspects of the world, from these hidden aspects of my life, come the Torah and Mashiach. So while I'm driving after those things which are visible to my eye, which are comprehensible, those things that I want and that I desire. Two-thirds of my life are sending me in directions that I don't understand and that I don't even necessarily feel productive at all. Or to compound it, to feel incredibly frustrated. Do you know how frustrated Yaakov was when he woke up the next morning and he saw Leah next to him in bed? utter frustration. And yet, what comes from that? The Torah itself and Mashiach. 
So it's another way of giving God, giving ourselves, giving the world, giving our lives the benefit of the doubt. If we can understand truly that we're being productive in ways that we don't fully understand because they're not clear to us in the moment. Someone told a story yesterday that was just a really simple story. I'm sure it was very complicated, but they, they told it in a few sentences. They said, you know something, I was just with someone yesterday who converted. They just had gotten out of the mikvah. They did an orthodox conversion. Unbelievable. And this is the story. She was a dancer in New York and was out with a guy and they were, you know, dancing at some club and they, they went out to a restaurant and he was Israeli or something like this and he wouldn't eat the hamburger. She was not Jewish, he was Jewish. And she was really curious, why are you not eating the hamburger? And he says, because I keep kosher. And she's like, what's kosher? <coughs> Cut to, she's Jewish now. <laughs> Right? Like, how much time that story was told over, I have no idea. What, you know, I'm sure you could write a book about all the stuff that I left out. Did the guy, did the guy know? Did he stay in touch with her? Are, are they married? No idea. I have, I have no details about this story whatsoever. All I know is the guy didn't eat the non-kosher hamburger, and at that moment, another Jewish soul was revealed in this world. So, you know, we have interactions with people and there are all these domino effects. You know, there's an amazing Baal Shem Tov story and it's long and I'm not going to tell it. But, but let me give you the punchline to the story because it's unbelievable. There's a person whose soul is really broken. This person did some really bad things. And the Baal Shem Tov tells him that when someone comes and tells you the story of your own life, you'll know that all your sins were forgiven. And eventually, he puts out the word that he's paying people to tell them, to, to, to come to him with Baal Shem Tov stories. And People are coming and he's hoping that someone will come one day and tell him his own story. And the person who has the story to tell him hears about this person who's paying to hear these stories and comes to him and he can't remember the story. His mind goes blank. And the way the story ends is he's leaving and he's so humiliated because he's been the subject of great hospitality from this person who's paying to hear the stories. And he got all this hospitality on this person's, you know, presumption that he's going to keep his word and tell a story. And his mind, he can't remember anything. And then at the very, very end, as, as the person's leaving... Because the host is crying and crying and crying. He's doing the most intense tshuva because he's made, he senses that this person might know something. And he feels like, maybe I haven't repented enough and that's why he doesn't remember. So he cries his eyes out over a period of, you know, over the course of the Shabbos. And then as the person is just about to leave and get on his wagon and go away, he says, oh, I remember. Here's the story. And he tells the person his own story. So, so I want to end with this bit of advice. And I think it's more than advice. We know certain things. We know that not to intentionally set fire to our own homes. <laughs> we know not to close our eyes, and then run into the middle of a busy intersection? We know certain things that we consider like, these are just incredibly obvious ways to get to, forget about the next day, to get to the next hour, right? So I would suggest that what I'm about to recommend 
is another bit of basic advice in terms of navigating our lives. And that is, we have to really ingrain inside of our minds and our hearts the fact that we don't know. We simply don't know. And when other people are acting in ways that are hurtful to us, we can ask for an explanation. And that we have to be mindful of our own behaviors because other people don't like to ask for explanations. We have to offer explanations. And that we have to understand that our own lives, even though we're at the steering wheel, that our own lives are not going to make sense to us. And that's because the Leia aspect, the hidden aspect of our own lives are not revealed to us during our lifetimes, for the most part. I heard in the name of Esther Wine, she said, your tafkid is not your tafkid. Tafkid means your, your bottom line, your mission in life which I thought was fascinating, meaning to say that what each of us decides, this is what I'm about, this is what I'm doing, but God has another agenda for us. And God is going to work that agenda through us even if it's not aligned with the agenda that we have for ourselves. And that we just have to accept and appreciate and love a more expansive understanding of our time in this world. And the fact that if we're sincerely motivated to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that we are being productive, but it's on the layer level, the hidden aspects are coming through us. And all we have to do in order to harness the reveal and the hidden is to be L'Shem Shemayim. To try our best to do the right thing. To try our best all the time. And then after we try our best, to try a little bit harder. And after that, try a little bit harder than that. And never stop trying a little bit harder to get it even more right until our last breath. And then we can have a certain level of confidence that both the revealed aspects of creation and God's own mission for us, the hidden realms, are operating and channeling through us in a harmonious, redemptive way. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions I'd love to hear him.